0: Charlie and I were talking about the flow of the service yesterday, and he, you know, I was explaining, yeah, I'll I'll get up on stage after the turkey video, and so what he says to me is, ah, the turkey is after the turkeys. (laughs) You all have no idea what it's like to have Charlie as your boss. (laughs) Yeah, he's the king of dad jokes. That's not a compliment, actually. Let me tell you a story that's actually humorous, okay? So there's a mom, and she's preparing some pancakes for her boys. And uh, they begin arguing over who's going to get the first pancake, which it takes like a minute to make another pancake. It's just ridiculous. And she thought, I'm going to teach them a moral lesson. So she says, you know, if Jesus was sitting here, he would say, no, my brother can have that pancake first. I can wait. At which point, Kevin, the older brother, says, Ryan, how about you be Jesus? (laughs) Right? And so, of course, Ryan, who's only three years old, he knows that it's not cool to say, I don't want to be Jesus. So he gets his pancake, and he slides it over with a scowl on his face. And that story reveals that there's really three kinds of people. There's the, the mother who genuinely believes in the generosity and the lifestyle of Jesus. And then there's the older brother that just wants to take and never give. And then there's the youngest brother who gives with a grudge. Check out 2 Corinthians with me. Charlie was um, speaking about it just a moment ago. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. And when I start to think, okay, so God loves a cheerful giver, what does it take to be a cheerful giver? giver? Is it, is it the cheerful person that makes it possible to be a giver or is it the giving person that makes it possible to be cheerful? What's interesting is that we live uh, in a place that says it is all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If you were to walk down any street in any town in the United States and you were to ask them, hey, do you want to be happy? They would undoubtedly respond with, yes, I want to be happy. Yet, Happiness seems very elusive to us Americans. The Harris Poll, which has been conducting a happiness survey for the last nine years, surveyed 2,202 Americans. 18 and older in May of of 2017, the survey revealed that only 33% of those people said they were actually happy. 33%, y'all, that's not a success rate. You could say that Americans are unsuccessful in their pursuit of happiness. Yet, we are some of the wealthiest. globalrichlist.com, you can input your annual salary and where you live in the world, and it'll compute uh, where you land and the riches of the world. If you put in $25,000, it says that you are in the top 2% of the wealth of the world. And if you add $10,000 to that, 35000 for your annual income, it says that you're in the top 1%. Actually, it says you're in the top 0.81% wealthiest in the world. Don't believe me. Go to globalrichlist.com and put in your annual income and where you live. So it's interesting to me that, um, you know, a lot of us, we have really nice cars. And we have houses for our cars. Think about it, when you leave here today, you will drive to your house and park your car in its own house. That's right. A lot of us, a lot of us have so much stuff in our car's house that we can't park our car in the house that was built for our car. We got a lot of stuff. Yes, and this is what's really, really just rocks me. It says the National Center of Charitable Statistics has calculated that the average American only gives 2.6% of their annual income to charity. So we're in the top 2% richest in the world, and we only give 2.6% of our income to charity. And I think most of us like this idea of giving. We think generosity, that's, that's a good thing. But the way that we pursue happiness in the United States is that, yeah, I'll give more after I get more. Let me get more, and then I'll give more. Listen to Richard Foster. He says, Contemporary culture is plagued by the passion to possess. The unreasoned boast abounds that the good life is found in accumulation, that more is better. Indeed, we often accept this notion without question, with the result that the lust of affluence in contemporary society has become psychotic. We crave things we neither need nor enjoy, and we buy things we do not like to impress people we do not like. <laughs> You're laughing. You feel it with me, right? That's a, it's a real thing, but the reality is trying to get more doesn't help you give more. And Jesus talked about money a lot. New Testament scholars agree that Jesus talked his documented words, 25% of them were in some way about money. Could you imagine if Southbrook, every fourth sermon was about money? I just got a nosebleed thinking about it. Like, That does not sound fun, but we talk about money because Jesus talked about money. And as far as I can tell, when Jesus talks about money, he is talking about something so much bigger than money. He's talking about the heart. Whenever you read in the New Testament and Jesus is talking about money, remember this, that the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. That's what he's always getting at. That's what he wants to talk to us about. There's this uh, guy named John. He wrote a famous book in the New Testament. His first book, chapter 3, verse 17, he says, is anyone, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? How can the love of God be in that person? So this is talking about generosity affects what's inside of you. Right. It affects what's inside of you. And in the, the NIV version is pretty gentle with it. The Greek text actually reads, If anyone has material possession and sees a brother in need, and instead of has no pity on them, it says, shuts up the bowels of him from him. How can the love of God be in that person? So the the Greek word klano means to prevent passage at an opening. I want you to get that picture in your head. To prevent (laughs) passage at an opening. In fact, the KJV version is even less PC. It says, but whoso have his world good, whoever is rich, and seeth his brother and have need and shutteth up his bowels from him does not have the love of God. Andy Stanley paraphrases the words of John his own way. He says, if you see someone in need and you suddenly get financially constipated, you might be full of something, but it ain't the love of God. (laughs) And John, he makes it so, so clear that money, if you don't see it as a means to an end, not even just for yourself, but for other people, the inside of you will not be set right. It will not be aligned with God. And how do we think that we can be happy if we're not aligned with the benevolent being that's at the center of the universe? You see, many people think that, yeah, Jesus talked about money, but he doesn't seem to be like the first person that comes to mind when we think about the subject of cheer or happiness You know, we think about pictures of Jesus with sunken eyes and pale skin, never mind the fact that he was probably a dark skin. And we think of him as this, like, thin, malnourished, just-before-the-cross picture, never mind the fact that he was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton because he hung out at parties too long and was always invited into people's houses for dinner. Instead, we look to people like the Dalai Lama on the art of happiness or... Tal Ben-Shahar on the science of happiness. We only looked at Jesus on how to pray, or how to forgive, how to have faith. Well, let me show you what was written about the person of Jesus in Hebrews 1.9. It says this, Your God has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He's talking about Jesus. Eugene Peterson's translation says, in the Message Bible, Jesus was the happiest person on the earth. Which makes a lot of sense because it's hard to imagine that this Jesus person would be able to start a movement that would go into every corner of the earth if he was only the man of sorrows. He was a man of joy, deep joy. People wanted to be around him. Jesus was happy. I think John chapter 2 shows a really great picture of just how happy Jesus was. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. And you can almost picture his mom like winking, like hint, <laughs> hint, right? It goes on, woman. And when Jesus says woman in their culture, this was not a term that was condescending. It was actually more of dear lady Jesus had respect for his mother. Dear lady, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Isn't that such a mom move? <laughs> like he didn't say, oh yeah, I'll do that. I'll take care of it. She forces his hand and says, do whatever he tells you. I'm telling you, he's going to do something. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. They would walk miles um, to events, and they would have dirt all over their sandals. Each one was holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. So it's overflowing. And then he told them, now, draw some water out and take it to the master of the banquet. The master of the banquet, for those of you who watch Downton Abbey, that's like Carson. The head butler, okay? They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And what did he say? He had not realized where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, and then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after, and the guests after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. This is no Boda box wine, people. This is the good <laughs> stuff. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. I really want to parse out this line because it's significant. The first of the signs. What is the sign supposed to do? It's supposed to show us what reality is really like. So this story of Jesus changing water to wine shows what Jesus is really like and it revealed his glory. We often think of like Celebrity, fame, and status is glory. What it actually means is God's presence, saying this is his personality. So, what is Jesus' personality? He's the kind of God who's at the top of a list to an invite party. He goes to that party and he stays there for such a long time that they run out of wine. And even when it's not his time, he cares so much about the happiness of that bride and groom. Think how flat that wedding would have fallen. They would have been known as those people that had a wedding that didn't provide for their guests. And Jesus said, you know what? It's not my time, but I care so much about her happiness. That little village girl, I'm going to make wine for her. And then he doesn't just make wine. He makes the wine. Jesus, the sommelier, he gets down in the cellar and he dusts off that bottle and he says, this is for you. This is for you. Is it any wonder that Jesus talked about joy and happiness a lot? In John chapter 15, this is what he says. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. In John chapter 17, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Jesus was happy, Jesus was generous, and Jesus cared about other people's happiness. Now, I have to make a comment that in the same way that I care about my daughter's happiness, it's not my top priority. I care way more about who they're becoming than how they feel. But let me tell you, the person that you become can affect how you feel. And that's what Jesus was getting at. He was getting at the heart. So if you ask the question, Is it the cheerful person that makes it possible to be a giver? Or is it the giving person that makes it possible to be cheerful? Here's where I think the answer is. In John 11, Jesus is getting ready to resurrect Lazarus. Lazarus had been dead for three days. And after he heals Lazarus and resurrects him, this is his response. So they took away the stone and then Jesus looked up and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I believe that Jesus was a cheerful giver, maybe the most cheerful, generous person that ever lived, because guess what? He was a grateful receiver. He was a grateful receiver. Jesus ex- was constantly expressing his thanks throughout the Gospels and his gratitude to God. Uh, I remember Katie and I, you know, we, our first daughter, Esther, and we're you know, excited as she's learning new words. You know, and she said mama, and that was like pretty cool to me. And when she said dada, that that was like really cool. When we tried to get her to say thank you, it was always like prompted. Here's your sippy cup. What do you say? Tantu. You know, which sounded so sweet. The first time that she said thank you, and we didn't have to ask her to say it, whoo! That was up here for me, you guys. Because it was like, oh my gosh, you might not actually be thankful for it, but at least you're learning, right? Like how to be a person of gratitude. That was just such a big deal for us. It is not natural for us to be grateful. It's not. So that's why Jesus was constantly teaching his disciples how to give their credit and their thanks to the Father in heaven. And, And Jesus, I really believe, was he was, he was cheerful and he was generous because he was constantly believing that God was giving him something to be grateful for. He wasn't concerned about where it was going to come from. He wasn't concerned about, oh, I gave all I had there. Am I going to have more to give later? Luke eleven thirty three 33 says, no one lights a lamp and puts it in a place it might be hidden or in a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand. Now, Jesus is going to explain this. He says, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your body is like a lamp full of light. The Greek word for healthy here actually means generous. So get this, when you see the world as abundant, that's when your body becomes full of light. But when you see the world as if there's not enough to go around, so get get what is yours and don't give it away, you're not going to be a person of light. You're not going to be a person of So Jesus, he had a specific mindset. He didn't have the scarcity mindset. He had the abundant mindset. In John chapter 10, he says, I've come that they might have it and have it abundantly. So it's not, it's not just am I grateful, but it's also knowing where you're receiving it from. And if you're receiving it from the most benevolent person at the center of the universe, I don't think you have to be concerned if you're going to get more later. Jesus said in Luke 6, 38, Give, and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, running over, poured into your lap. If I asked the person beside you to hand you their wallet, and then I said, okay, generosity time, give. I don't think you're going to be concerned about how much you're giving. In fact, I think you might even be more generous than if it was your own wallet. Because it's not tied to your bank account to the things that you think you have, or am I going to have enough left over? And I think when we get to the point where we see our own purse, our own wallet, my own PayPal, as somebody else's, y'all, that's when God is ready to work his magic. And he's got a strategy. Jesus himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. The word blessed in the original Greek is makarion, which actually means happy. So again, the translation is more accurate if you say it is more happy to give than to receive. Researchers at the University of Oregon took advantage of the brain imaging technology known as the MRI and EEG. As described in the June 15, 2007 issue of Science, this is old science, y'all. The brain scan showed that there are three very different situations, receiving money, seeing money go to a good cause, and then donating money. All activated similar pleasure-related centers deep in the brain. This is what Dr. William Harbaugh says. To economists, the surprising thing about this paper is that we actually see people getting rewards as they give up money. On top of that, people experience even more brain activation when they give. Jesus was way ahead of his time. He wasn't just holy, he was smart. He was smart. We've all heard the saying, money can't buy happiness, but a convertible would sure help me get there faster. (laughs) Yeah. In actuality, giving the money away that you would spend on that convertible is probably going to give you longer-lasting happiness. There's a professor, he took 50 of his students, they all blew up balloons, and he had them write their name on this balloon, and he took them down a hallway, and they threw their balloons in this room. While they're sitting in the hallway, he, he says, all right, I'm going to blow the whistle, and I want you to find your balloon as fast as you can. Blows his whistle. They all run in. It's chaotic, noisy, maybe aggressive. Maybe some balloons get popped. Most of the students come out with their balloon. And then the professor says, okay, I've got a different objective for you. This time... When I blow that whistle, you walk into the room and you grab the first balloon that you find. I don't care if it has your name on it or not. And you start shouting for the person whose name's on your balloon and you give it to them. Those students got their balloons in half the amount of time with a whole lot less chaos. No balloons were popped. And this is what the professor explained after each student had gained their happiness balloon. It was happiness that the balloon represented. I really think Jesus is one of the smartest, if not the smartest person who ever lived. And he understood that when we give away happiness, when we're more concerned about getting that balloon to somebody else, we're actually going to find it for ourselves sooner too. Now there's, there's clearly a reward in this is more happy to give than receive. There's a profit here. And Scripture is not afraid of saying that there's a reward for giving because the writers of Scripture knew that God would make good on it. And it's not a sticky, like, you know, if you give 10 bucks, you're going to get 100 bucks. I'm going to explain that a little bit more. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians 9. It says, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Did you know... That the farmer today, if he were to plant two bushels of wheat by harvest time, he can expect to reap on average 67 bushels. So what? <laughs> if he plants three bushels of oats, he can expect by harvest time to to get a return of 79 bushels. Guys, that's an amazing principle of increase. Jesus was very aware. When he talked about the rewards of giving and the principle of increase, he understood what he was communicating. And this is why we're supposed to look at Corinthians and the, the, the lifestyle of generosity is giving is not a debt you owe, it is a seed you sow. That's right. But so often we're that little brother that slides a pancake over with a scowl on her face. And you might be thinking, well, I believe in God, but I'm not, and like, I believe that he's abundant, but I'm not as cheerful or generous as Jesus was. And this is what I would say to you. I think there's a big difference between believing in God and believing God. For example, if I told you that I believed in a stockbroker, I believe they exist. If I told you that I believe the stockbroker And she gives me a tip on the market, I'm going to invest. What's happening here (coughs) is the God of the universe is saying, hey, I've I've got my own economy secrets. Here's how you invest. This is your tip on the market. And guess what? It's not just about getting a return. It's about who it shapes inside of you. Now, it says that you will reap more than you sow, and I almost hesitate to point that out because pastors and religious people have abused that for a long time. But there are two qualifiers for the way that God gives reward on our investment. It says God's riches are not always material. And he says that you give sacrificially, and if you honor me with your financial resources, I will reward you in this age and in the age to come. Because the farmer who sowed the seeds didn't reap a harvest immediately. He had to wait. Rewards are not immediate. So Max Lucado, he writes uh, that the media tells us happiness is when we retire, it's when we aspire to have more, when we park a new car in our driveway or have new clothing in our closet. Happiness happens when we lose weight, find the date, get the mate. That's what we keep hearing. So it takes a full court press to stand against that and follow the side door to happiness that Jesus talks about. Happiness happens when you give it away. That's the consistent story through Scripture. Well, This is my favorite part. If we as Christians could be known as the happiest people in the city, not necessarily the people that have it all figured out or the holiest people in the city, but the happiest I think only heaven can imagine the great things that would happen. Don't we want to be people like that? It's not rhetorical. Do we want to be people like that? Yeah, yeah we do. Jesus, he was that cheerful giver because he was a grateful receiver. And I think the the way that we become cheerful givers is the exact same way we become the most grateful receivers. If we want to be the happiest people on the earth, we have to be the most grateful people on the earth. You heard Charlie say, you know, the most famous New Testament Bible verse, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only son. That he gave. And see, too often, generosity is associated with a golden rule, which really blunts its power. It says, you know, do for others as you would have them do unto you, which most of the time, let's be honest, is translated as, okay, I won't hurt you because I don't want you to hurt me back. This is about something so much bigger than that. This is about doing for others what they can't do for themselves. This is about doing for others what's been done for you. There's a book uh, that's a really um, important book to our men's ministry here in Southbrook. It's called The Heart of a Warrior. And Michael Thompson shares a story about his childhood. It was like this. When I was 13, we moved from the West Coast to Oklahoma. Eighth grade was a tough time to move. That spring, I was one of about 40 kids who tried out for a select baseball team that only needed a few in the roster. Every kid got to bat once. Every kid fielded some take a few grounders, catch whatever came to the outfield. I knew if I had made the team. I never knew if I made the team. Because a few days later, my dad announced that the other team he was forming. And he was coaching that other team. The first day we got onto the field with this new team, the other boys looked pretty familiar. I'm pretty sure they were there the week before for the last tryouts. Not until 20 years later, When I was in my 30s, did I realize the truth? We had all been cut from the first team. And my dad had gone out of his way to start another team so I could play. Do you know in Matthew 5, Jesus opens up his campaign of ministry? And this is what he says, Oh, you're broken? Congratulations. The kingdom of heaven is for you oh, you don't measure up to the standards of society, congratulations, I've got a team for you. And that father, he could have taken the, you know, the the road that said, ah, son, didn't feel well, shame him. You could have batted better. Or he could have just shrugged it off and not taken any action and said, ah, better luck next year, son. That's not what he did. So if we want to be the most grateful people on the earth to be the most happy people on the earth, I believe we have the best reason to be grateful. We've got that God who gave us his only son. One of my favorite ways to practice gratitude is through communion. So I want to just prepare you and encourage you and challenge you to take communion, but take it slow, not to go. Really just think about, A, Jesus, the ultimate gift to become the ultimate person of gratitude, but also all the other blessings and the goodness that is in your life. I know that a lot of us have bad things in our lives, too, and those things always get to be center stage, but when you realize that there's a whole backdrop of good behind that center stage, and it just takes a time of sitting still and thinking about it. You pray with me. When I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. When I was helpless, God and his son, they did something for me. They did for me what I couldn't do for myself. And now God, you want us to live a lifestyle of that generosity. It's not something that we have to conjure up in ourselves and just suddenly be cheerful or suddenly be generous we're just giving away what we're getting. This is, what God, why we put our resources at your disposal because you put yours in ours. Thank you for being the happiest person on the earth and showing us how we can also be happy so that way we can be the light on the hill for all of the people that really desperately need to see In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. We'll see you for part two next weekend of hilarious holidays. Have a good one.